Our scripture reading today is found in the book of Psalms, should be right at the middle of your Bible. Psalm 73, a song of Asaph. Uh, if you have the Bible in front of you there, you can take it that the church provides. It's page 695. I would really like each one of you to pull that out because we're going to stick right with that text. As you're turning there, um, I want to make sure that you know that this week is a good week for us to think about the issue that this psalm addresses. Namely, doubt, because you know that in the middle part of our country, actually so much of the place where I have come from during this past week or so, uh, people have experienced tremendous devastation through the floods that have come and may continue to come. In fact, this week I will be in St. Louis and in East St. Louis, they're concerned about whether the levees are going to hold. It's brought people together in some ways, but homes and families and lives have been devastated and we as God's people Sometimes wonder why God allows such things, but always know that we are called upon to uphold other people, people made in the image of God and for whom Christ died when they're going through this kind of devastation. Uh, Let's pray together for them. Father, we as your people here in Pasadena gather in the name of Christ and thank you for the many ways you bless us and continue to do so. Same time, Father, we know that in these past days there have been many people, many of your people, uh, who are going through such difficult times all around the world, but particularly, Father, right now we pause and uphold uh, the people in the middle part of our country, in Iowa, Illinois, parts of Missouri, all along the Mississippi, people who have lost their homes, their livelihoods, and some that you have devastated their lives. Have mercy on them, Father. I pray that you would protect them from further damage. I pray that you would provide what is needed. We don't even know how to pray. And your word tells us that we need simply to uphold people and rely upon your Holy Spirit to do what is best in their lives. And we pray you will. May your blessing be upon them. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand as we hear God's word. Psalm 73. One of the great psalms of the Bible, in my personal opinion, one of the great poems in the history of literature. Surely, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked they have no struggles their bodies are healthy and strong they are free from the burdens common to man they are not plagued by human ills therefore pride is their necklace they clothe themselves with violence from their callous hearts comes iniquity the evil conceits of their minds know no limits they scoff And speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. And their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them. And drink up waters in abundance. And they say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. 
Surely have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. And all day long I have been plagued. I have been punished every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. But when I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. This frustrated man entered the sanctuary of God and something changed, which leads us to verse 28 to see what happened in the sanctuary of God that changed him, in which he would conclude by saying, But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. What happened between verse 17 and 28 is what I pray will happen this morning. For what we are hearing is indeed the word of God. Thanks be to God. All strong Christians, I'll put it that way. All true believing Christians that I have ever met have had times of serious questions about their faith and even times of doubt. Do you believe me when I say that? Now, I have had some people tell me that Christians never have those kinds of questions and never have doubts. I, I don't know what to do with that I, because I, I really believe that these people are trying to be honest with me as their pastor, but I don't know what to do with that because surely there is so much that happens in our world that should raise some questions, don't you think? What's been happening in the Midwest? It raises some questions. Why does that happen? What we looked at earlier this year when Pastor Scott White brought to our attention the ongoing problem of AIDS in places like Cambodia and what that does not just to the individuals, but to the children who are orphaned, it raises some questions, doesn't it? What, what, what happens with famine across Africa? What happens in many of our individual families and lives where, where people prematurely find out or diagnosed with having cancer or, or where children are born with congenital handicaps? I mean, those kind of things always bring up a question for us as believers. How can God allow this to happen? At least for those of us who believe in the kind of God that the Bible reveals God to be, which is a God who is all-powerful. He's maker of heaven and earth. He, he is omnipotent, all-powerful, and at the same time good, so good that he loved the world so much that he sent his one and only son who gave his life for us. So he's both powerful and good, but also the God we believe in, different from some other religions, is not just out there, transcendent, but, but here and at work, imminent, among us. And when, when we live life for a while, aren't there things that happen that make us have to turn to God and say, Father, I, I just don't understand. At least it's that way for me. I'll admit that to you as your pastor. The only kind of faith that would never ask any questions, it seems to me, would be what I call blind faith. Do you know what that is? Blind faith is, is that kind of faith that we close our eyes to the realities we, we close our eyes. We're just not going to look at him. I don't, I don't know what. Maybe we're afraid God isn't up to our questions. 
Maybe we're afraid because our, our, our faith isn't as real to us as it should be that if we ask those questions, something about us will be undermined. I'm not quite sure. But let me tell you that blind faith is not biblical faith. Not, not when I read the accounts of the Bible. The one thing I love, one of the many things that I love about what the Bible reveals to us is that people who came to know God in this difficult and imperfect world were always people who brought their questions and doubts directly to the right place, to God. Sometimes they were frustrated. Sometimes they were upset. Sometimes they were angry. When we just read the stories of the Bible, sometimes we don't see that. But I'll tell you, when you get into the hearts of the people, you find out that the questions that I'm trying to talk to you about are the questions they had. And especially you find that in the poetry of the Bible. It's so personal at times that I sometimes wonder if, if the people like Asaph, who wrote the 73rd Psalm, really intended for people in Pasadena in the 21st century to read what they were writing. Feels to me like a personal journal. He, he tells God what he's looking at that he doesn't understand. And he is very frustrated about it, and he is seeking some understanding from the Lord. Listen to me. What I have found is that people who will do that, bring the issues that we face to God directly, will find at the end of the day that our faith is not undermined by doing that, but it's found to be more real and more personal. Because one of the reasons is this, that in my understanding, doubt is not the opposite of faith. So I say it again? Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Biblical faith, maybe the opposite of it is absolute unbelief, or may it, maybe it's rebellion against God, but by definition we only doubt what we already believe. You're with me here, aren't you? You know, an atheist has doubts. You know that, don't you? But an atheist's doubts would be about whether there might actually be a God after all. That someday he or she is going to have to stand in front of and give account of how they've lived. That's the atheist's doubts. But for us as Christians, when we live this side of heaven, with all of the things that happen, there are times that things happen in our personal lives or in the world around us that seem not to, 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 to fit together, to align with what God has said in his word. And we need to come to church sometimes and just look those in the face. And this summer, we're going to do some of that by looking at the poetry of the Bible. I mean, when we're looking at things like doubt and, and guilt and depression, it's going to feel sometimes more like the blues, <laughs> more like the blues than something else. But the thing that resonates through this is that there is always hope for a believer. And though resolution may not come quickly, there is always the hope that as we turn to a God who is real and is present and is powerful, we will find that he is here. And that he is sufficient. I mean, Job is just one of the, the larger stories in the Bible. And what is the story of Job? But a man who went through some incredible difficulties. And, and as he was frustrated with all that was happening, he brought those things straight to God. And at the end of the day, the faith of Job was not undermined, but was deepened through it. You can read that story. And if, if you don't believe me, that's why we turn to Psalm 73. It's sort of like the book of Job in a nutshell. Just a few verses. And in such a concise and powerful way, we find a man of God, a man of faith, who in verse 2 looks like he's just about to lose his faith. Look at it with me again. As for me, he said, my faith had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, he says. 
But at the end, in verse 28, in, a, in bookends, almost like, in a, in a verse that is constructed very similarly, as for me, just like verse 2, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. In fact, I'm going to go out of this place and tell other troubled people about all that you have done, God, so that they can know that there is hope in a difficult world. And the question is, what on earth has happened between verse 2 and verse 28? Do you see that? And that's what we're going to see. This beautiful poem can be divided so easily into two parts. Well, first there's that introduction, verse 1. Then there is the problem of living by faith in a difficult world, verse 2 through 15, uh, 14. And then there are the steps toward solution or resolution that we find in verses 15 through 28. You ready to look at it? First, the problem that, that a man of God had one day. And the problem essentially boils down to this. There was a contradiction between what he believed and what he observed. Do you get that? There was, a, there was a contradiction between what he believed about God and, and how God would work and what he observed in the world around him. So, so his theory, what he believed about God, is found in verse 1. Look at that with me. It, it, it's like a worship chorus. Surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to his people. God is good to those who are pure in heart. Can't you almost hear us just singing that? Dwayne and John, can't you see this turned into a worship chorus? God is good. God is good. God is good to his people. God is good to the pure in heart. So you can almost picture walking into Lake Avenue Church and this, and you're a little bit late and we're all singing this song and you join your voices with us. Yes, uh, God is good. God is good to his people. God is good to those who are good. Is God good? What would you say? Yes, he is. And that's what Asaph believed. But then he looked around him and what he saw was what seemed to be good was that God was not good to good people. What, what does he see? I envied the arrogant when I saw not the prosperity of God's people or the good. The people who are getting ahead are the wicked. And I would love to just spend a lot of time with this, but I don't think I have to because I think all of us can feel what he's feeling in this downward spiral of frustration and anger. He just spews out everything he feels in honesty straight to God. It seems to me it is a personal journal or a personal prayer letter that he writes to God. But look at what he says. It escalates in his frustration. Well, look at these wicked people, he says. Verse 4. They don't have any struggles. Their health is good. They, they don't have any burdens. They're, they're not plagued by the things that most of us are plagued by. And, but look at them. They walk around here and pride is, is their necklace. And they've gotten places of authority, but they use them to oppress other people. Doesn't it sound like he's writing to us? Do you see how all of this seems to transcend all of the years and all the cultures and all the points in history? And to say, listen, this is how human beings feel when they see people that they think are rotten people doing well. But look, God, they are really evil people. From their callous hearts comes iniquity and the evil conceits of their, their minds. I mean, what they cook up, it just knows no limits. And, and listen to their speech. Foul people, they scoff, speak with malice. 
They threaten to oppress people. If you don't do what I want you to do, you're out of here. And God, they mock you. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Haven't you noticed this? And their tongues take possessions of the earth. And instead of people holding them at arm's length, they go to the bookstores and buy their books so that they can learn to live the way that they're living. That's what he essentially says here. People turn to them and they just drink up their waters, their teaching in abundance. And God, they say, when I turn to them and say, someday God will hold you to account. They say, how can God know? Does he have knowledge? I mean, how with the size of our world, can God possibly know every little detail of whatever? How can God know? Does he have knowledge? God, haven't you ever noticed this? This is what they are like. And he sums it all up in verse 12. They are always carefree. Look at them. And they keep increasing in wealth. I was trying to think about whether I'd ever felt like Asaph. No doubt about it. So many times in my life, and I really, I can trace it all the way back to my childhood. And the first time I can remember this happening was when I was in the first grade. So a little town in West Virginia and on the playground, first through third graders, all were there together. And the third graders bullied the first graders. You know, this is this makes sense, doesn't it? It happens all the time. And it was so frustrating because I couldn't get anybody to notice it. And I didn't even want to go out to the playground till one day I found out that the playground attendant was my first grade teacher, Mrs. Legg. And I'm telling you, she was a, I'm trying to find the, the, a formidable woman. That's how I remember her. Of course, I was a little first grader, but that's, I remember her as being a strong, uh, dominant woman, self-confident woman. And I'll tell you, she always held us to account in the class. So when I saw her out there on the playground, I knew that they were going to be, payday was coming for them. And so the third grader started doing the things, bullying and mocking and keeping us from doing things that they always did. And she saw it happening. But she kept standing over there. So finally, I went over to her and say, said, Mrs. Lake, uh, have you noticed what's happening over here? <laughs> and it's funny, you know, it's been a little while since I was in the first grade. And this still is like it was yesterday, which shows you the psychological difficulties of your pastor. I looked out, I saw the penners here. You probably want to do an analysis about whether... I still remember this. I turned to her and says, said, have you noticed what's happening? You know what she said? It's a cruel world, Greg. <laughs> That's all. That's all. And sent me back. And now that I look back, I just, I know what she was trying to say. If you can't handle... Dealing with third graders. What are you going to do when you get to the really tough part as an adult, when you get into places in the workplace and in this community where you have this happening all the time? You always just have somebody bail you out. You'll never be able to grow and handle this thing. But you know what I wanted? You're formidable. I'm going to keep pulling that word out. You could do something about this. Why don't you? And that's what Asaph felt when he saw what was happening around him and couldn't understand why God was not stepping in immediately to change things. Now, one of the biggest questions we have to ask is, we all know there's injustice in this world, right? We all know that there is evil, and often those who do evil seem to get ahead. And Asaph had known this for a long time. Why did this one day suddenly become a problem for him? And the answer so insightfully is found in verses 13 and 14. 
Just look at it and see if you are as honest as he is. God, after talking about these wicked people, surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain, God, I have washed my hands in innocence. But look what's happened to me. All day long I have been plagued and I am punished every morning. All right. Isn't it true that this big problem of the suffering innocent that's all around us in the world often doesn't become a problem for us until we personally become the innocent suffering? There was a an essayist named Mencken who wrote about this one day. He said, I have to admit that the smallest pain in my littlest finger causes me more mental anguish than the death of millions of my fellow men and women. One day, this became a problem for Asaph because one day he became the sufferer. And isn't that true of us all? We see the pain in other parts of the world, but it becomes a problem for us when I am the one who loses my job. When I become the one whose family starts having the problems, when I am the one whose marriage starts going on the rocks, then we turn to God and say, I showed up in that hot service at nine o'clock at the Lake Avenue Church. Why aren't things going better for me? I suffered through that whole thing and all of these things that we can say. I I pray, I go to Bible studies, I do all of these things. Why aren't things going better for me? At least, at least Asaph is willing to acknowledge that. I envied the arrogant. That's what he says. That's what he said. Now, having said that, even though his problem that day was a quite self-centered one and really wasn't the kind of thing that we're thinking about others who are suffering, still it was a real issue and I think that we need to address it. Where do we find any hope in the midst of a world where we experience things like Asaph experienced? And as you leave this place, it's often one of the biggest questions people raise about those who walk in faith with Christ. Why would God allow this? Well, I want us to then move to the second part of the uh, of the poem. I've called it the solution, though that's probably too strong. Uh, It's probably a step toward solution. And I want you to see where he discovered it. Verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus. Now, this is an important phrase. He had been writing a personal journal to God. This was his personal prayer life. And he said, if I had told everybody around me that this is what I was thinking, I would have betrayed your children. But God, when I tried to understand what's happening in this world, it's oppressive to me. Till... I entered the sanctuary of God. Then. Now, my dad became a Christian, I've told you before, when I was six. And from that point on, we we were in church all the time. And I've heard all of the trite religious phrases. And one that I remember hearing all the time is the phrase, look to the Lord. You having trouble? Well, just look to the Lord. And I often thought that was just a way of punting this question of the difficulties in the world rather than engaging with it. But more and more... I've come to the point of seeing that rightly understood, that phrase is exactly right. Because in the normal part of our lives, other things consume our thinking, right? For him, it was all of these people around him having difficulty, and his focus was on the fact that he didn't have what they had. Then he walked into the sanctuary of the Lord, and he had to look to the Lord. 
See, something was happening in Asaph's that day that I have often wondered, why did he even show up in the sanctuary of God that day? He surely didn't want to. He was so angry with God and so frustrated. He didn't want to go to church. And yet he was there. Uh, I've asked why. Maybe he had to direct the choir. Maybe he had to play the harpsichord. Maybe he had to do the ushering. More likely, he had to preach the sermon. (laughs) But he didn't feel like it. But when he went in to the sanctuary of God, something happened that changed his life. And our, our task is to discover what it was and to pray that when you come to this place, some of this will happen again and again. What did he discover? He discovered a new way of seeing the world. And there are three points I want to make. Number one, when he came in to the sanctuary of God, he developed a new perspective on human destiny. And that may be too hard a phrase. Uh, Maybe something like this. A new perspective on what really lasts. On what really lasts. Look at verse 17 again. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground and you cast them down to ruin. Now let's think about what's supposed to happen when you come into church. I know that the 21st century church has become more and more focused on making sure that people are entertained and enjoy what happens. Uh, And I hope that when you come in, you're not just bored out of your minds. But you know that cannot be the main thing that happens when we walk into this place. Because other places can probably do a better job of just entertaining. If you love sports, maybe going to a sporting event. If there's just one kind of music that you like, you might want to pick just the kind of music that you like. But this thing of getting together with a lot of different kind of people, just to be entertained, probably isn't the main goal of the church, right? The main reason why you and I need to gather here is, and the phrase is, to worship. But but what is that? The main thought I have about worship is that it's putting God in his rightful place. It's putting him at the center of our vision. It's knowing that the world doesn't revolve around me or even around the the, the temporary material things out here, but God is at the heart of everything. And when we begin to worship, turn our, our attention to God, then other things start to fall into place. And that's, that's what happened to, to Asaph. Once he got heaven's perspective on things that last, it changed everything. Uh, I, I was thinking about, you know, my wife, Chris, used to make all of my clothes. I think of suits and shirts and everything until our children came. Then she stopped doing that. But she's good at it. What she does, she does well. And one day when we were in Germany, she was knitting me a sweater. And I'd been away on a concert tour. When I came back in to the little condo that we had, there I saw the sweater in process being made. And what I saw was, well, it, it just seemed to have unfinished ends. Uh, I could see some sort of maybe a, a pattern. The colors seemed to fit, but it really it looked to me to be quite a mess, just to tell you the truth. And she saw that rather skeptical look on my face, and she just said, Greg, you're looking at the wrong side. I don't do enough of this. You, some of you know what it is. When she flipped it over, I saw that usual beauty and order and design. And in many ways, that's what has to happen here in the rest of our lives. I mean, all these other things seem to be what's really important. They're crowding our lives. That's what's happening at work. It's what's happening in our family. We come into the sanctuary of God. 
And probably for the first time in the week, we cast our eyes just upon him. And we begin to see the world not just from our perspective, but from an eternal perspective. And for Asaph, when he looked at it from that perspective, then these people that he, that he, that he envied, their destiny didn't look all that great, did it? These people who had left God out of their lives, he says, they are on slippery ground. We know you're going to cast them down to ruin. They're not going to be ready to stand in front of you, Father, when you are ready to awake and to arise and to step and to step in. Now, I know that in our day, people scoff at a, at a preacher who gets up and talks about notions of heaven and hell and judgment of evil. But let me tell you, those things are real. And you want them to be real. Because if there is no day where at the end of the day, God makes sure that goodness is rewarded and that evil is dealt with, you and I live in an absurd world. There is no hope. But the Bible says it is real. And that if evil is not dealt with here, God says, I will make sure that it is dealt with. And because of that, people who leave God out, even though in the short run, they may be succeeding just like Asaph said they were. In the long run, it just doesn't look good at all. And in fact, that 20th verse, the very things that they have put at the center of their lives and the very things that Asaph was wanting to be at the center of his life, he says, those things are so short-lived, they're really no more than a dream. Do you see the beautiful poetic way he puts it? It's like a dream, he says. When one awakes, so that, Father, when you arise, you will despise those who have put those things at the center of their lives as fantasies. Do any of you ever dream? Um, I was reading a report. Do you know what the most common dream among Americans is? That we show up in some public place, a mall or a church service, and we haven't dressed. We just popped right out of bed and come in there. That's the most common dream that Americans have. I put that sensitively. Um, the most common dream for students, especially graduate students, is that it comes to the end of the semester and exam time comes and your roommate wakes you up and you realize there is one class, the final exam is in one hour and you haven't even shown up for that class one day for the entire semester. <laughs> I used to have that nightmare all the time. Have you ever had one of those kind of nightmares? It seems so real. You pop up out of bed. There's sweat breaking out on your face. You look around you. And then you start laughing at yourself. And you say, it's not real. It's not real. You're thankful. And that's what Asaph says. Those things that I thought were the most important things. Those things that I was envying. Those things don't last. And one of the things we need to do when we come into this place is again begin to see the world from heaven's perspective and to know that following him, even though there may be a short time of questions, misunderstanding, at the end of the day when we trust him, it will be seen to have been worth it. It's the first thing he learned in worship. Do you think we might gain a little heavenly perspective this morning? I pray so. Second, oh, I must go. Why, why does the clock always go so fast for me? Probably it doesn't feel that way for you. But second, uh, he gained a new perspective on himself. He saw something about himself that he, he'd forgotten. Look at verse 21. God, back when my heart was grieved, 
my spirit embittered. I know this. I was a senseless and ignorant brute beast before you. Yet, even when I was angry with you and, 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 and I couldn't understand what was going on, I, I know this. I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me by your counsel. And not only that, afterward, you will take me into glory. I'll tell you, when you walk in to the place of worship, when we engage with that, whether we wanted it or not, we are exposed to the presence of God. I'll tell you what, what happens to me, and you'll just have to think about whether this happens to you. God seems to be far away. Don't really feel like coming. You walk in. Then we start singing these great hymns. Or we have the opportunity for prayer and confession that John led us in today. Something inside of me starts to melt. When I sing the songs, I start thinking, I do believe that. When I start singing about Lord have mercy, I know my need for that. And I know he is ready to give it. My heart starts, has this ever happened to you? When this word is then opened... Suddenly you know that God has something for you. There's a message that he wants to give to you. And what you become aware of is this. That even though on one side you have questions and doubts, on the other there is something just as real. Namely your relationship with God. And you come in and you begin to sing and you begin to worship and hear the word. And you know this. I am a child of God. Have you ever experienced that? And that sometimes when we look back... We know that those most troubled times of our lives are the times where we have really sensed when we look back that God was there carrying us and holding us. As long as we stay out of worship, we can begin to pretend that we're not believers. We can almost have the evil one in the back of our minds saying, how can you say you're a Christian? With all those doubts and questions you have, and you know your actions and your thoughts aren't all that great either. Inside, you're a little bit hardened, also doubtful about yourself. But when we come into worship and we're forced to look at him, we know he loves us and we know he holds us. We begin to give this same testimony. God, I have learned I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand and you guide me through these times with your counsel. Here, I'm going to appeal to those of you who are believers to your experience of walking with God and wondering if this has been true of you. Uh, Jeremiah had been in the ministry for 40 years when he wrote Jeremiah 19 and 20. You can read those agonizing chapters. He came to a point after years and years of ministry, of faithfulness to God, of just wanting to reject his faith altogether. And when he tried to do it, when he tried to do it, he said, I cannot, for you and your word are in my inner being, in my soul, like a burning fire. Because being a child of God is not something you and I work up in ourselves. It's not something we earn by our efforts and hold on to by our strength. We trust what he has done and then what God does. He forgives our sins and he gives himself to us. Amen. He gives himself to us. And while we continue to live by faith, not yet seeing everything perfectly, there are times when we walk into this place and we begin to sing, we begin to open that word and what should happen and I think what does happen for so many of us, we say, God, how did you know what I was thinking? He speaks to us personally and we are able to affirm something about ourselves. Namely this, on one side, not only are the questions real that we should bring honestly and openly to God, 
but also the faith, the relationship with God is real. Some will say, well, of course the questions are real, but the relationship with God is not real. I say, why would you say that? This is a part of walking with God in an imperfect world. The things happen that we have to simply bring to God and say, I will trust you and I know that I belong to you. Second thing he learned in worship that I pray will happen every time you come to Lake Avenue Church. That those of us who sometimes wonder, do I really belong to him? Will hear him say to us, I have given myself to you. You are my child. Hallelujah. Third thing, final thing that he learned in worship. He gained a new perspective. I called it on real values. And maybe the better way to put it is this, on what's really important in this world. <laughs> what's, he thought all these other things were important. He figured out what's really important in this world. Look at verse 25. Great, great verses. God, whom have I in heaven but you? But even here on earth, earth has nothing I desire besides you, because my flesh and my heart may fail. But God, you are the strength of my heart. Now, have you ever um, talked with somebody that every time you ask them a question, they begin their answer with something like this. Well, it all depends upon what you mean by. We, we had a president once who always answered every question that way. I will make no political statements. But for students, this is a great ploy. When a teacher asks you a question and you don't know the answer, or buy you a little time. Teacher asks you a question and you say, well, it all depends on what you mean by. And you can think about it and think about it. Well, Let's, let's apply that test to this. God is good to his people. God is good to those who are good. Is that true? And, and I think the answer we could say is, well, it all depends on what you mean by good. I've jotted down a few questions. Uh, if we mean, does God make all good people rich? Immediately. Is God good to those who are good? Not materially. If material riches, possessions is what we mean by goodness, no, God isn't always good to his people. Or if we mean that God will always make all good people immediately healthy so that they will never die. Is God good in that way? Well, no. Well, no, he's not good in that way. Or if we mean by good, will God make all good people popular with many friendships? Well, no. Look at the people of the Bible. Look at all around us. There are times where when we stand for God, we're not popular. So if bestowing material wealth and, and always giving health and, and popularity is what we mean by good, then God isn't good to the pure in heart. But let me tell you, as pleasing as those benefits are, and many times God gives them, doesn't he? He steps in and he gives those sorts of things. But if that's what we live for, then I think that our meaning of goodness is so small. It, I, I pity us if we think that those things are the things that real goodness consists of. In fact, I'm convinced that one of the things that robs American Christians of the greatest joy that they can have is that we have so often substituted these good things for the best thing. For the best thing. And that's what Asaph found when he came into worship. Listen, God, whom have I in heaven but you? I knew that. But on earth you're here too. 
And when I trust in you and I live for you here and I show people that my heart is invested in you, then, then there's nothing that can take that away. It sounds just like Romans 8. In the midst of difficulties, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that comes to us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And Asaph said, that is the thing that matters. My relationship with you, my trust in you. And when you are my sufficiency, then if you give all of those other things, I can be content. And if you take those things away, I can wait and be content until you finish your work. I thought about how do I illustrate this? How a relationship with God can change our perspective on everything in the world. And I thought again of a marriage. I'll look down at Ceci and John. You haven't been married as long as Chris and I. We've been married 31 years. Those of you married, do you remember the time in the flush of many of us, our youth? We stood in a place just like this in front of a pastor. And we made those incredible promises. I take you for better, for worse. I've often thought, do they know how bad that worse can be? I take you uh, for richer or for poorer. I take you in sickness and in health till death parts us. Do you know what we're saying when we make those promises? Or at least what we should be saying when we make those promises. Really, we're saying this. That if I have you, then those things are not so important to me. That in fact, my very ability to fully appreciate those kinds of things, my health or, or possessions, really is going to be dependent upon sharing them together with you. Having you makes those things so unimportant, really. Now, I'll tell you, if a human relationship can change our value system that much, how much should our relationship to God change everything about us? That's what Asaph learned in the place of worship. And that's why we must worship here beyond anything else. We must see God as, as he is. And when we do, what we're going to say is, I've known this. Whom have I in heaven but you? So when I go to heaven, uh, I know I must trust in you and rely on you. But Father, you are here now on earth. There's nothing I just have to have. There's nothing I just have to have. For you are the portion of my life. We are really saying that here... In our relationship with God, the thing that I call you to each week is that pearl, that pearl of such great value. That if we have it, then we can endure anything that this world may throw at us. That is what Asaph learned that day, and it changed his life. Is God good to his people? And the answer is, uh, well, it all depends on what you mean by good. And look at what Asaph meant by good. Verse 28, I love this. As for me, here's what is good. It is good to be near God. Is, is that too religious for you to understand it? It is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge in this world. And in fact, what I'm going to do, God, instead of complaining anymore about you, when I leave this place of worship and meet all sorts of people whose lives are falling apart because they don't know you, I'm going to tell them there is hope. I'm going to tell of all your good deeds so that that place where I have found peace and contentment in the midst of doubt and questions, 
might not be only mine, but theirs as well. I'll leave you with those verses again. Whom have I in heaven but you, Father? Earth has nothing I must have that I desire besides you. So my flesh and my heart, they will fail. But God is the strength of my heart. To his glory. Amen. I'm going to ask Randy Northrup to come up and sing a song about the wondrous presence of God. As Randy comes and gets ready, let's bow our heads for just a moment. Let the Spirit of God work in you. In you, If there are other things you have put in God's place, as you've come, you can really relate to the early part of this psalm because you feel that way. Then I would ask you to take this time to cast your eyes upon the Lord to worship him and to place your trust in him.